Okay, so if you guys have your Bibles, um, open up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and you know, we've been uh, walking through this, and uh, again, when we look at, at this, this passage in context, you know, if you were to, you don't have to, but if you have your Bibles, if you were to back up to John chapter 13, this night that um, we've spent the last several weeks discussing starts in John chapter 13. So from John chapter 13 through John chapter 18 is really one night. Okay, and if, if you remember back to John chapter 13, you see where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and he identifies Judas as the one who would betray him and shouts at, or doesn't shout, but tells Peter that he's going to deny him. And John 14, we have, again, what I think is one of the most critical verses in all of Scripture, John 14, 6, where Jesus makes the declaration that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And John chapter, at the very end of John chapter 14, more than likely, um, some commentators differ in opinion, but more than likely at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus and the disciples get up and they leave the upper room and they begin to make their way out of Jerusalem. And, and in this John chapter 15, you have this little discourse that um, Jesus talks about being the vine and, and where the branches. He talks about this need for um, community, a relationship, believer to believer, friendships. You should have friendships. And, he, and he's really clamoring on the, on the disciples to stay unified with each other. And then um, at the very end of John chapter 15, he talks about persecution coming and, and be prepared that, that you know, he was leaving, um, he was soon leaving, and that if the world hated him, they were going to hate him as well. And so he kind of makes those three little declarations there um, in uh, John chapter 15. Um, and then when we spent the last several weeks in John chapter 17, remember John 17 was a prayer. It was, it was Jesus praying to God. And the, the whole chapter, it's the longest recorded prayer uh, that we have of Jesus. And not to say that that's the longest time he ever prayed, but, but that's the longest recorded prayer that we have in and as I've encouraged you that in your Bibles, you more than likely have, uh, like mine, the heading of John chapter 17 is a high priestly prayer. And I think a better, more suitable title for that would be um, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' Prayer. And so, uh, and, and in that we see the first um, six or so verses where Jesus prays for himself. And then um, after that, he prays for the disciples. And then last week we talked about how Jesus prayed for us and how comforting that was for us. And so, so, so starting in John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 18 is one night in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and here we see in John chapter 18, we're going to look this morning at the first um, 12 verses here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it and then we're going to pray and then we're going to try and dissect it a little bit before we all take our nap this afternoon. All right? So here we go. John chapter 18 starting in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? And they asked him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, or said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to, to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. 
So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And then Peter, or then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And verse 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its seat. Um, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then verse 12 says, And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, um, for your word. I thank you that we can come and read it. We can study it. We can meditate upon it. We can learn from it. We can be motivated by it. Um, and it can change our lives. And uh, this morning, Lord, we, we spent the last several weeks looking at a prayer between you and the Father. And those were words of comfort. Those were words um, of hope. Uh, Lord, we saw that you prayed um, for yourself. And we can learn how, how you had a, a goal, that, that God gave you a job, and, and you were able to go before him saying it was finished. And how challenging it is for us knowing that you have a, a job for us as well. And, and may we be motivated to finish the task that you've ordained for us to do. And Lord, we also saw, and we spent a week talking about how you pray for the disciples, and in that prayer you prayed for unity. And they'd be able to withstand all the um, attacks of the devil. Lord, we are in the same boat that the disciples are in, Lord, that we, that, that we need unity. And we need, to, as, a, as a faith family, we need to remain unified as a as, as believers in general, we need to remain unified. And Lord, we need to have the strength and the endurance to withstand the devil, just like the disciples needed. And then that prayer so graciously concluded with you, just mere moments before your arrest, praying for us, the generations that would come to know you as their Savior as a result of the works and the words of the disciples. That's us today. Lord, to, to know that, you, that we were on your mind in those final moments is just unbelievable. And so, Lord, as we spent several weeks thinking and, and looking and studying this prayer, now we enter into the garden, and the intensity increases. And, Lord, I pray that as we look at some passages in Scripture over the next few weeks that are, are um, probably familiar with many. And, and sometimes we save them for Easter. Lord, I pray that you just help these words, this scripture come alive in our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that, that it's not just be something that we think about once a year. We have on our brand new fancy clothes and taking family pictures afterwards, but but you impress this into our souls. Lord, I, I pray for life change today in me and the rest of the faith family. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. And so we have this beginning in, in the first verse in John 18 um, where they have now kind of exited Jerusalem and, and it's interesting, John is, uh, points out a few things, and sometimes we, we read it, we just kind of glance over it, we, we, we pass over it quickly. And, and 
I want you to understand, like, when, when John makes some of these statements, it's not coincidental. It's not just to, um, to add a little perspective. It's, there's, some, there's some depth to some of these statements here. So, so in this, um, as he's saying, Jesus, when Jesus spoke these words, when he completed his prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Um, your, your Bible might call it the Kidron Valley, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. That Kidron's fairly important. Um, if we go back into the Old Testament, if we were to go back into to 2 Samuel, David crossed over the Kidron Valley. When, when his son Absalom had revolted against him, when we mentioned Absalom um, and this revolt of, of several weeks back, there's some comparisons between this and where Jesus is this time. Because if you remember, one of the key components in this revolt of Absalom was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's key advisor, one of his inner circle, and he betrayed David. And so, so I wonder, as, 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 as Jesus is crossing over this Kidron Valley, these memories, these, these, these thoughts of Scripture that Jesus had learned, that the disciples had learned about David, and Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knows that, that Judas has already betrayed him. I mean, it's already done. Just like Ahithophel betrayed David. This time of year is the Passover. So, so that evening, they've been preparing all the sheep for slaughter. Um, during the, this time, it was illegal for them to do a census. And so the way they would collect, the way they would try and gather their data, rather than counting the people, is they would count the number of sheep that were slaughtered for the sacrifice. Josephus, um, who is one of the early Jewish historians, estimates that 256,000 sheep were slaughtered. To, to give us a fuller perspective of how many people were there, basically one sheep would cover 10 people. And what would happen is as they would slaughter these 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 sheep, the blood would go into this little creek that would go down into the Kidron Valley. And so as Jesus and the disciples are crossing over this Kidron Valley, the blood of almost a quarter million sheep is mixed in with the water. You guys see that picture? Jesus walking through this valley in a stream of the blood from the Lamb. It's also somewhat significant when we read in Joel chapter 3 verse 12 um, another mention of the Kidron Valley and it's a prophetic statement it's the day of final judgment when all the nations would gather and would stand before the judge Jesus Christ and so the one here who is about to go into the garden of Gethsemane who will be betrayed arrested and killed for all of humanity would one day stand in that same valley as judge. And so I don't think it's by mistake that, that, that John just tosses his little nugget in, oh, hey, it was right here. No, there's some meaning behind this. There's some depth to this idea. As Jesus is going in, it's not just a geographical statement that John's making. He's, he's bringing us to, to the significance of where they're at. We see that also further in that verse because he says, um, as they go of the brook of Kidron where there was a garden. 
And he's going to tie in this little simple statement of garden. He's, he's tying in this, the Gospel of John doesn't give us the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. But he's entering the Garden of Gethsemane now. And there's this comparison between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. We have the first Adam, Adam and Eve, right? And it's in that Garden of Eden that, that Adam rejects the will of the Father, right? Remember, you can do anything you want here except you can't eat of this tree. And what does Adam and Eve do? They eat of the tree, right? They, they go against the will of the Father. In this new garden, Garden of Gethsemane, you have what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 refers to as the last Adam or Jesus who is not going to reject the will of the Father but is going to submit to the will of the Father. So there's this play between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. And John's bringing all of this full circle. And so they enter into this garden which he and his disciples had entered. Um, verse 2 says, Now Jesus, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his, dis, met with it, there with his disciples. To me, that's a pretty powerful statement. It wasn't like Jesus was just embracing nature. It wasn't like he just took the disciples on a little nature walk. There's a reason why they always are continually went to the garden. That was to pray. See, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, have been chasing after Jesus. I mean, they, they wanted to get him, and, and they, they were unsuccessful time and time again. And so they went in and they got their inside man. Judas knew where Jesus would be. In time of trouble, he always retreated to a place of prayer. As I was pondering that this weekend, or, or this week over the sermon, I started wondering, when we get into those difficult situations in life, when things get really stressful, where do we retreat to? Where do we go? Do we go to a place of prayer? I mean, do we find, maybe, do we find a spot where we just go and we just get on our hands and our knees and just pray? Beyond just that, where do we go, do people around us know? Like to me, that's impactful that, that Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be because whenever it got tough, whenever it got rough, he knew he would go to a place of prayer. I mean, the people around Jesus knew. And I started thinking, where do, where do I go? And is it so obvious that the people around me know that, man, when the going gets tough, when, when it's intense, when there's, when there's uh, maybe not a lot of clarity, it's difficult. Do the people know that Chad goes to a place of prayer? Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be, a place of prayer. Verse uh, 3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, uh, your translation may say a few different things, but that band of soldiers, again, our English translation is a little bit off. Um, the Greek word actually, would a better insert for that would be cohort, which was a technical term for the Roman army. Okay, it was What they would do, that a cohort of the Roman army was one-tenth of a legion. 
Okay, a legion is 6,000 soldiers. Okay, so let's get this all in perspective. You have Jesus and how many people? How many disciples were there? There were 12, but one left. Okay, so basic math. I'm not real good at math, but we got Jesus plus 11 equals 12. Okay? It's about 3 in the morning. They're praying. Judas is going to roll up there with a cohort or one-tenth of a legion of Roman soldiers. A legion, 6,000, one-tenth of 6,000 is 600. And that doesn't even include, the Bible tells us that there were Pharisees, there were temple guards. Okay, so we got 12 dudes praying in an army of over 600 that roll up there. I love this statement. Verse 4 says, And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And Jesus knows they're coming. The Bible tells us they got the lanterns, the torches, they got their armor, the weapons. So as, they're, as 600 people are marching up this hillside, their armor and the swords, all that kind of stuff's clanking and making all sorts of noise. And Jesus says, I, and I don't know about you, but I can just picture this in all calmness. Who are you guys looking for? He knows what's going to happen. And, and they respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 5, I want you guys to underline this. He says, and he answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said to him, underline this, I am he. I am he. Why is that significant? I mean, it's a simple statement, right? I am he. That phrase we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John it goes back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3. That's the same phrase that when Moses was standing before a burning bush in all awe and wonder trying to figure out what's going on, he says, who is this? And God answers, I am. That's the same phrase. It's not just a matter of just saying, it's me. He says, I am. He again declares his deity. He's declaring that he is God. And I find this amazing, the response of these soldiers, this cohort, this over 600 guys in full armor and weapons coming to arrest Jesus and the response that they have when Jesus says, I am. See, in verse 5 says, Jews who had betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You guys realize that? When Jesus says, I am, this army falls to the ground. Have you guys ever seen that before? Maybe, I don't know if you guys, I've missed this before in Scripture. Like, in my mind, as I play out the scene, I see the crowds coming, I see Jesus, the disciples all, I see Jesus like this praying. The rest of the guys are sleeping. The soldiers come up. 
And Jesus says, hey, it's me. And they just start shackling him right away. But that's not what happened. Jesus declares himself, makes the I am statement, and their response to the power of God was they all fall to the ground. Now listen, at that moment, Jesus and the disciples could have ran. Like all these guys, they've fallen over. They could have ran. They could have hidden, escaped. But again, in full control, what does Jesus do? Verse 7 says, and so he asked them again. He gives them time to gain their composure. And he asked them again, uh, who are you guys looking for? Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Again, we see this grace and peace of Christ. He knows what will occur. He knows all the torture. He knows everything that's just around the corner. And rather than being concerned with his own fate, rather than being concerned with what will happen to him, his response is, I'm right here. Let the rest of the guys go. Now let me back up for a second. The Gospel of John does not talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, the disciples, more than likely enter the garden around midnight. And while they're in the garden, they spend about three hours. And if you guys remember the story, remember Jesus, the disciples, they get into the garden. Um, and then Jesus turns to, to Peter, James, and John and says, you guys, the rest of you guys stay here. Peter, James, and John, you come up with me a little bit further. They go a little bit further. And then he tells those guys. And when we look in Luke, the, the gospel tells us, Luke tells us that Jesus was agitated. He, he was upset. He was visibly agitated and upset. And so Jesus tells these three guys, hey, stay with me, pray with me. Okay, stay up with me and pray with me. You guys stay here. I'm going to go just over here. And Jesus goes and he prays and he comes back and he finds Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, asleep. He rattles them. Come on, guys. I need you guys to stay up with me and pray with me. He goes back, prays, comes back a while later, and he finds the three guys again asleep. Does this three times. And the third time, Luke tells us that it was such intense prayer on Jesus' part that he was literally sweating blood. I mean, that is intense. I know some intense people in my life, but I've never seen anybody literally be so consumed with intensity that they're bleeding through their sweat glands. That's intense. Because Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. Peter is that character in the New Testament that so many of us can identify with. Right? Because Peter seems to always have like the good intentions. He's the one that really speaks before he listens. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. Like, I'm so glad that Peter's in the Bible because it gives me hope. Right? And Peter, all throughout, remember, Peter, I, I will not deny you. Jesus tells me you're going to deny me. Peter, I will not, I will not, I will die for you. That's Peter. 
we give Peter a hard time, right? Because we, we think about this. We think about the disciples all sleeping, don't we? But let's think at their perspective, at their level. It's like 2, 3 in the morning. How many of us have really tried to do some really intense prayer at like 2 or 3 in the morning? Typically, how do those prayers end? If it's like me, with drool on my pillow. Right? Because at 2, 3 in the morning, like we're, we're asleep, we're tired. We had a long day. We've worked all day. A lot of these, these guys, Peter was one of the guys that, that was sent ahead to prepare for this last supper. These guys have been working all day long. I mean, they've, emotionally, they're drained. Right? They've had this conversation with Jesus now. For three chapters we've seen, I mean, they feel like yo-yos. They are emotionally zapped, physically exhausted. So before we start picking on the disciples, I will tell you this, if Chad were there that day, that evening, that night, I'd probably do the same thing they did. These guys are in and out of sleep, and all of a sudden, these men come up. The soldiers, the cohort arrives. And Peter jumps up, not sure what's going on. Sees them going to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Pulls his sword out. Now, guys, let's think about this for just a moment here. Because we want to pile on Peter. There's 12 guys. As best we know, only one person has a weapon, and that's Peter. Bible tells us it's a short sword. He's got a, a knife. And there's 600 sol- Roman soldiers trained. Full armor, swords, all that stuff. And Peter jumps up in defense of God, of Jesus. Jumps up. He, he is, when he, when he made that statement earlier, I will die for you. I will die with you. When Peter grabs his sword and strikes Malchus and cuts his ear off, he was, he was setting himself up to be a fourth cross on that hill of Calvary. He, he, he meant those words. Now, Peter's zeal is a little misdirected. Now, it's not based on knowledge. He doesn't know what's about to happen. In Peter's mind, like many of the disciples, they still think, they still hope that Jesus is going to set up this earthly kingdom. And they're going to be officers in this new kingdom. They're confused still about all this talk of Jesus leaving and dying. And so, Jesus, so Peter's going to take this one last stand in defense of his best friend, in defense of his rabbi, his master, the one he loved, the one he spent three years with. And he strikes. And it wasn't just anybody. But he strikes Malchus, the highest religious official there. The one sent on behalf of the high priest. And listen, I don't think it was a matter of Peter just 
in a cold day's waking up and just swinging a sword and happen to hit something or someone. I think Peter knew exactly what he was doing. So he struck the ear, the right ear. That's why I think John's specific in, in making the point about it. In this time, those who would serve within the temple had to be free of deformity. And so this one, the highest ranking religious official, by Peter going and striking the ear, would take away this man's right and ability to work and serve in the temple. And Jesus, Jesus' last recorded miracle, bends down and takes the ear and puts it back on the head of Malchus. Think through that miracle with me for a second. Because there's two, two parts to this, and it affects two different people. One, it's Peter, the zealous, over-anxious, passionate Peter, who, like so often, speaks before he thinks, puts his mouth, there's foot in his mouth, he jumps up there and starts doing something, and Jesus says, guys, no, put your sword away. He says, use the, the, the term in there, about using, the, the, don't take the cup away from my Father. That cup refers to his crucifixion. Jesus was going to do the Father's will and didn't want Peter to get in the way of that. He also knew that if Peter did that and he didn't help the situation, Peter would be arrested and killed just like him. So in the graciousness of Christ he heals Malchus in a way of protecting Peter there's also Malchus who is this high ranking religious figure who was sent to oversee the arrest of Jesus Put yourselves in the feet of Jesus for a moment. Jesus was fully God, but fully man. We see that played out better here than probably anywhere else in Scripture. In this portion, or this time frame, where we've seen a few different times where the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was um, agitated. That story in Luke of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that we talked about shows us that yes, he was God, but he was man too. He wrestled with emotions. We are foolish to think that Jesus openly went to a cross with no thoughts, with no anxiety, with no fear. With nothing. We are foolish to think that it was a walk in the park for him. That doesn't take anything away from his deity. It doesn't take anything away from him being God. No, this was a time of intensity. I mean, Jesus, as he's praying to God in that garden, asking him to take away the cup, come up with another way. 
I mean, Jesus knows that the sin of all humanity will be laid on his shoulders. He knows there'll be, for a moment, a separation between him and God. He knows all of this. And as he goes and he heals Malchus, he heals this religious group. He shows this religious group a sense of goodwill, of an opportunity, of a love that would extend, even though they were wrong, even though they were misguided, there was still an outpouring of hope for them. See, in John 18, 12, the Bible tells us that he was taken away. He was arrested and taken away. We need to be very clear in understanding. And it wasn't shackles or chains or ropes that bound Jesus. It was simply love. It was a love for you and for me. There had to be a penalty paid for sin. There had to be. That time of year, that Passover, the Jews would all gather there in Israel, in in Jerusalem, and they would remember the Passover. They would go back to the days of Moses, and they would sacrifice these lambs as a way of atoning for their sins. And Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there would, no, there would never need to be any other sacrifice of lambs. Jesus would complete it all. So it wasn't chains that bound Jesus. It was love. The next couple weeks, as we go through this gospel of John chapter 18 and 19, are sometimes difficult to think about, read. It's not the fun stuff. It's not like when Jesus turns water into wine. It's not like when he does a little miracle where he feeds 5,000 It's not like when he walks on water and calms the storm. Those are fun and exciting things to to think about and talk about. This stuff, this is the climatic point of all the Gospels. Jesus had, had this ministry that he'd talked about who he was, what he was, referred to his death on several occasions. And now it's going to play out. And I love how Jesus knows exactly what will occur. He knows all those disciples are going to run and hide. He knows that. Think about this. The people that he loved and trusted was around the most during those three years. His best friends People he he would rely on would all run and hide. 
the youth, uh, we're starting a study in about two weeks um, called Courage. Uh, it's like a four-week kind of video, partial video, and then discussion time. Um, it's by a man named Francis Chan. You may have heard of him before. He, he's written a couple books. and He's outside of the Bible. He wrote a book several years ago now, I guess, called Crazy Love. It's probably the, the best book I've read, out, again, outside of the scriptures, um, at least most life-impacting book that I've read. This, this study talks about courage, the, the ability and the desire to stand, to be able to take a stand and do what's right, to, to take a stand for your faith. In the little trailer part we watched on this past Wednesday night with the youth, he talks about, would you be willing to stand if the entire world was against you? If you were the only one, if you were the only Christian in the entire world, would you stand? That time and that garden experience, Jesus must have felt like he was there all by himself. Again, the vindictive Chad, if I knew those things, I'd take them all down with me. But Jesus says, listen, you're looking for me. Let the rest of these guys go. You're looking for me. Let them go. Every time I read this portion of Scripture, I am so overwhelmed by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ with everything that is about to occur, he time after time after time looked out for the disciples and us. You know, Jesus faced something that all of us have faced, that his was much greater. Maybe the consequences much heavier. But all of us have been betrayed, haven't we? I mean, some of us adults still hold on to betrayals that occurred to us when we were in junior high. Things happen at work. Maybe our boss Maybe one of the people in our, our work network group, something goes wrong and then they just post the blame on us. We have to take the fall for it. School, maybe somebody in the group gets more popular than the next person and, and the way of them attaining popularity is to put you down or make fun of you or whatever it is. And you thought you were close or, 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 or you shared this secret. You were looking for someone to just talk with and share this secret and all of a sudden you show up and the next day it's posted on Facebook and the whole world knows about it. Like we've all been betrayed. We all have a Judas probably in our life or a disciple that when the going gets tough 
Maybe they weren't the one that literally said something. But for the next few weeks, they're probably not going to sit with you at the lunchroom. Maybe they don't want to go out to lunch with you on lunch hour. We've all been betrayed. How do we handle that betrayal? What do we do? Peter tried to whack someone's ear off. And Jesus' response was, Peter, we're not going to act like the rest of the world. We're not going to do that. And heals them. People are looking at us and watching us. For those of us who know, believe, and have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have a higher calling. Us accepting that gift, we need to release a few other things. When those events occur in our life, my suggestion for us would be to do just like Jesus did. To find a place of prayer. A place that you can retreat to. And pray to find the strength, to find discernment, to find hope, to find whatever it is you may need. Jesus, time and time and time again, always went to prayer. To go to a place of prayer. And as things play out, if we're going to be bound with anything, let's be bound in love. Be bound in love. It doesn't mean the betrayer becomes our best friend. Story plays out. Jesus is arrested, goes on trial, is beaten, and ultimately dies. Judas sees it all play out and realizes he plays a critical role in the story. And Judas is so consumed with grief, the scriptures tell us that he goes and takes his own life. Let's not be that kind of a betrayer. Let's be bound in love. Let's be bound in love. If we mess up, if somehow we, we, we step on someone or hurt someone, whether we meant it or didn't mean it, let's be bound in love. Seek forgiveness. And be willing to extend forgiveness. Let's find that place of prayer. I would encourage you to not just do it when times are tough, but to follow the example of Christ and do it often. And then for some, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this begins what will be an amazing story of God's perfect plan to offer you a gift, a free gift, no strings attached, to spend eternity with Him. Maybe today's the day 
Maybe you have questions. My encouragement is today, this morning, when we're done, you come find me. Come back the next couple of weeks as we continue this journey and see the grace and the love of Christ continued out. But we're faced with a few things this morning. And I hope as the Holy Spirit leads us, convicts us, or challenges us, that we respond and not put it off. Let's pray.